to see you again. Uh, thank you, Your Honors, and may it please the court. I'm Jonathan Mitchell on behalf of the appellants, Lano County et al. The district court's preliminary injunction should be reversed for multiple independent reasons. The first and most obvious problem is that the defendants are not violating the plaintiff's First Amendment right to access and receive information because each of the 17 books that the plaintiffs have sued over remains available for the plaintiffs to read and access and check out at Lano Library through the library's in-house checkout system. All of the plaintiffs are aware of this fact, and that means the plaintiffs have the same ability to access and obtain information and ideas that they had before the 17 books were weeded. The plaintiffs, to be sure, would prefer for the books to be returned to the library shelves, but the First Amendment does not give library patrons a right to demand that books be stored in a particular location in the library so long as the books remain available to the plaintiffs who are suing. And as long as the plaintiffs remain capable of accessing and obtaining each of these 17 books, and no one disputes that they are, they cannot possibly show that there is an ongoing violation of their constitutional rights, nor can they show that the defendants are violating their First Amendment rights in a manner that warrants a preliminary injunction. The second and related problem is that the plaintiffs have failed to make a clear showing of irreparable harm. How can the plaintiffs possibly be suffering irreparable injury when they can continue to access each of the 17 disputed books at the library? The Appley's brief does not even attempt to explain how the harms that the plaintiffs are suffering would qualify as an irreparable injury that warrants a preliminary injunction. Mr. Mitchell, are some of the 17 books available on Biblioteca? Some of them are, yes, not all. I couldn't tell from the district court's opinion how many of them were available through that service. I believe it was four, and we mentioned this in our reply brief, there's a footnote that says the exact number and which books that remain available on the online database. I believe it is four out of the 17, and then uh, I think another 11 or 12 are available through interlibrary loan. The district court was not impressed by that fact because he thought it was not sufficient substitute for the availability of an actual paper copy that one can hold. So that why, that's why we've primarily focused before this court on the ability of the plaintiffs to access the books through the in-house checkout mm -hmm. system. But you are right, Judge Duncan, there are many other ways these books can be obtained. And that's another reason why it's so ridiculous for the plaintiffs to be calling this a book ban. Uh, when you remove a book from the library shelves, you are not banning people from having the book. They're simply being taken off the shelves and removed from the catalog. They are available not only to the plaintiffs through other sources, but they're actually available through the in-house library itself. And that's why its defendants are not doing anything close to censorship here. The third problem, after we get past the absence of a First Amendment violation and the absence of irreparable harm, is that the district court erred and contradicted the binding precedent of the Fifth Circuit when it held that a public library is a limited public forum, and when it further held that public libraries are forbidden to engage in viewpoint discrimination or content discrimination. Where, where is, is he doing that in that footnote? In a footnote? footnote? Okay, I, I couldn't tell what that meant, uh, yes. whether it was actually a holding that a, the, the shelves of a library are a limited public forum. It was unclear to me. I certainly interpret it, Judge Duncan, as a holding for several reasons. He quotes that language from Sund, a district court opinion, with approval and incorporates that by reference into his opinion. But more importantly, only by holding that a library is a limited public forum can a court therefore trigger rules against viewpoint discrimination or content discrimination. And to begin, 
there's no prohibition on content discrimination in a limited public forum. There's only a prohibition on viewpoint discrimination. But without a holding that a library is a limited public forum, I don't see how the district court could have come up with a rule of no viewpoint discrimination. D does Sund actually hold that, that a library is a limited public, public library, limited public forum? It did hold that, but it's a holding of a district court. It predates American Library, and more importantly, it predates this court's decision in Chiras, right. which specifically says that forum analysis is inappropriate in the public library context because libraries must have broad discretion with regard to their collection decisions. So Sund at the time, I can't fault the Sund District Court for saying what it did because it predates the relevant precedent that we're relying on. The District Court decision in this case, by contrast, postdates Chiras and postdates the American Library Association. So for the court to be following a decision of a district court rather than the precedent of this court was, in our view, legal error that should be repudiated by this court. Of course, there's really no need even to get to that issue because the availability of the 17 books through the in-house library system obviates any possible violation of the First Amendment without regard to whether public libraries are a limited public forum. But we would respectfully ask the court, if it does agree with us on any of these issues, to rule on the different grounds we've argued for, even though it may not be necessary to do so, because this case will be going back on remand to the district court for trial. And it would be very helpful for the district court to have guidance from this court about what exactly the law is with respect to public libraries. Right now, there seems to be a little bit of tension between the cases of the Supreme Court, where you have PICO on the one hand and American Library on the other, neither of which generated a majority opinion of the court. So there's no clear guidance from the Supreme Court of the United States. And in this court, there's the decision of Chiras, which largely adopts the rationale of the American Library plurality opinion, and also the decision of Campbell a little bit earlier from the mid-1990s that reversed a grant of summary judgment asked the district court to find out the actual motivations for removing library books, but Campbell never comes down and says what the actual standard is for when the Constitution is violated over a book removal. So it would be very helpful to have... What should we do about the difference between public libraries and school libraries? In our view, Judge Wiener, we don't think it makes a difference. A public library, whether it's held at a school or whether it's outside a school, needs to have broad discretion to set minimum standards for the quality of books and materials that it has. There is some language in some of the opinions suggesting that there is greater latitude for school officials than for public library officials to determine the content of books. But it's hard for me to think of a scenario where it would be permissible to weed a book from a school library, but then impermissible to weed a book from a public library. For example, the PICO plurality opinion of Justice Brennan explicitly acknowledges that it's acceptable to weed books that are pervasively vulgar or that lack educational suitability in a school library. It doesn't seem to me sensible to say that a public library must therefore house books that are pervasively vulgar or that lack educational suitability. Either of those grounds, in our view, would be equally valid of a reason to weed a book from a public library, no less than it would be a reason to weed a book from a school library. And you know, the ALA case, though, is specifically about public libraries, um, and PICO is about school libraries, and ALA contains all this language that I've, I've gone through, some of it, um, that talk about the broad discretion that public libraries have to curate their collections. Correct. And it is a plurality opinion from American Library. Right, but, but, but there's Justice Kennedy uh, uh, concurs and says in, in, if I'm not mistaken, I'm trying to figure out what the Marx rule would be as applied to ALA. I mean, Justice Kennedy seems to agree with the 
pluralities reasoning and just says if there wasn't a way for an adult to unblock certain websites, he would think there would be an as-applied challenge. Right. And I think we didn't discuss the Marx rule in our brief, Judge Duncan, because in our view, and it's possible the plaintiffs will disagree with this, but we believe Chiras, when it quoted those passages from Chief Justice Rehnquist's plurality opinion, it made those passages the binding precedent of the oh, Fifth Circuit. Okay. So that's the way we've been relying on American Library. We admit up front that is a plurality opinion, and it is not law in and of itself. But to the extent Shiras incorporates those relevant passages, and it does mention the broad discretion quote that Your Honor just read it from. It does. But, I mean, Campbell does, does something somewhat similar with respect to Pico. It, it, sa it, it says Justice White's concurrence is the narrowest opinion. Right. I'm not sure how much of the plurality that pulls into it. It, it, it pulls in something, I guess. Yes. I don't know what Justice White thought about the plurality. The way we interpret Campbell was that it, it did, I think, try to apply a Marx analysis. I don't remember whether it cited Marx specifically, but it did rely on the white concurrence. And it said that we would look to the Brennan plurality opinion, I think, for guidance. Right. But it wasn't quite as emphatic as Chiris was, where Chiris is actually taking quotes directly from the Rehnquist plurality and incorporating it as the law of the Fifth Circuit. Campbell was a little bit more hedged because it does say that we look to the plurality opinion and give it respectful consideration, but I don't interpret anything in Campbell as actually taking quotes or any passages from that Brennan plurality opinion and adopting it as the law of the Fifth Circuit. So a Marx analysis would be more appropriate when it comes to PICO uh, with respect to Justice White's opinion. And the way we've tried to synthesize all of these cases is to say that rational basis review is what should apply. Because again, the Brennan plurality opinion is not law. Even the Brennan plurality opinion in PICO does not go so far as to say that there's a ban on viewpoint discrimination or content discrimination. In fact, the Brennan plurality opinion explicitly endorses the idea of content discrimination with these caveats for educational suitability and pervasively vulgar materials. So the way we have tried to synthesize the cases, and we admit there's some tension. You have Pico and Campbell on the one hand, you have Chiras and American Library on the other, but there is broad discretion that has been incorporated as the law of the Fifth Circuit, and that type of standard is most compatible in our view with the rational basis test. Certainly not a ban, a categorical ban, on viewpoint discrimination or content discrimination, which is what the district court held. And now, there's another serious problem with the district court's analysis. Even if one were to assume, for the sake of argument, that a public library is a limited public forum, it is permissible to engage in content discrimination in a limited public forum, as long as the content discrimination is viewpoint neutral and reasonable. The district court and the plaintiffs have argued throughout this litigation that a limited public forum means a ban on content discrimination, and that is simply not the law. The plaintiffs need to walk back one of these two assertions. They either need to repudiate the idea that a public library is a limited public forum, or they need to repudiate their claim that content discrimination is categorically impermissible or subject to strict scrutiny when public librarians make weeding decisions. There is a fourth problem with the district court's ruling that I'd like to address, and that gets to the issue of the facts. There is no evidence in the record, let alone a clear showing, that Amber Milam actually engaged in content discrimination or viewpoint discrimination when she weeded the 17 disputed books. It is undisputed that Milam didn't even read these books before weeding them, and she testified repeatedly, both in open court and in sworn declarations, that the content and viewpoints expressed in these books had nothing to do with her decisions to weed. She said repeatedly that she weeded the books because she believed in her judgment that they satisfied the musty criteria for weeding. The plaintiffs disagree with the way that she applied the musty factors, 
but that does not prove a violation of the First Amendment, and it certainly does not prove that she had nefarious motivations, such as content or viewpoint discrimination, when she didn't even read the books. The, the, district, court's, the, the district court's opinion seems to ascribe Wallace's and Wells' motivations to Milam. Does, if that's true, is that a fact-finding? He did say the court finds, and there is that passage in the opinion where it does use the word find, that the, that the actions of Amber Milam, because they were taken so quickly after Bonnie Wallace sent this email to Judge Cunningham, and after other patrons like Rochelle Wells were complaining about the button fart books, that he used language that said maybe seen to have adopted Wallace's and Wells's motivation. So that particular statement in the opinion, I don't interpret as a finding because he, he just hedged it so much. Maybe seen, maybe possible to see. It was more an expression of possibility. But even if the court were to treat that as a finding of fact, it is clearly erroneous because number one, Bonnie Wallace didn't want the books removed. She specifically says in her email, don't remove the books from the shelves. I only want them relocated to the adult section. It's in page 357 of the record. So if Amber Milam is just acting as the sock puppet of Bonnie Wallace, we would have expected her not to weed the books, but actually just make sure they were relocated to some part of the adult section. Another problem is Bonnie Wallace's list had 47 titles on it. Only six or seven were removed by Wallace. We the vast majority. How many of the 47 were in the library? So 47 were in the three different libraries. So there were. Everything on the Wallace list was in a library. That's correct. Subject to this litigation. That's correct. The list was assembled by somebody else who took a different list that was prepared by Matt Krause, the state representative, and then crossed that list with the books that are currently in the Lano Library system. That's how this, these 47 titles were generated. And then. Ms. Wallace forwarded that spreadsheet to Judge Cunningham in an email. That's the email in, on page 350 of the record. Judge Cunningham, in turn, forwards the list to Amber mm -hmm. Milam with no instructions whatsoever about what to do about it. Wallace never spoke to Milam about the list at all. Cunningham never communicated anything to Milam about what should happen with these books. Milam, on her own initiative, pulls the books from the shelves. The plaintiffs use the word remove in their brief. Remove can have two different meanings, and they deliberately conflate these two throughout the litigation. Milam temporarily pulls the books from the shelves to review whether they should be weeded. She did that to all 47 books, but she only weeded six or seven. Whether it's six or seven depends on whether you count being jazz. Being jazz was in two different locations. Milam only weeded one of the two books. That's another problem with the district court's opinion. If Milam was motivated by content and viewpoint discrimination, she would have weeded both copies of being jazz. She only weeded one. She weeded the one at Lano Library because it wasn't being checked out. It hadn't been checked out in four years. She leaves the one in place at Kingsland Library because it had a better circulation record. That's what librarians are supposed to do. They look at the circulation records of books and use that as a factor to determine whether the book should be weeded. There's what does the record show us about why Cast and the KKK book were weeded? So Milam's not entirely certain why Cast was weeded, and her best recollection, and she testifies to this, both at the trial and in her sworn declarations, was that even though Cast had a somewhat better circulation record than some of the other books that got weeded, there may have been other problems that she couldn't exactly recall. For example, some of these books may have had conditioning issues. We don't have the actual physical books in the record anymore because the books were all donated to charity or sold. The only book one that book actually- introduced, One book introduced. One. Why was the one available but not these other? Because that book was given to Ms. Little as a gift from one of the librarians after it got weeded. Because Ms. Little testified at the preliminary injunction hearing that her son really enjoyed that book. It was called In the Night Kitchen. So after the book was weeded, the library gave it to Ms. Little as a gift rather than just dispersing that book with all the others. 
So the, the remaining 17 books are not in the record. There's nothing in there showing what type of condition they were in. It's possible Milam pulled it off the shelf and saw the book was damaged. But the plaintiffs bear the burden of proof on all of this. And again, Judge Duncan, the district court didn't even try to say that Milam's reasons were pretextual because in the footnote, footnote seven, the district court acknowledges that reasonable people can have different views about how to apply the musty factors. So he didn't really hinge his decision on that. He instead tried to say that there was content and viewpoint discrimination for the reasons put forth in his opinion. All right, I sir. see my time has expired. I'll save the rest for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honors. May it please the court, Catherine Chiarello on behalf of Green Little and the other library patron plaintiffs. Hmm. This case involves a straightforward application of clear Fifth Circuit precedent to factual findings that were made by the district court. It is this court's ruling in Campbell versus St. Tammany Parish School Board that provides the appropriate legal framework here. So does Campbell call for strict scrutiny for any content or viewpoint-based decision made by a public library? Your Honor, I would not describe it as strict scrutiny. What so, I the answer, so is the answer no? No, it is not, Your Honor. The answer is Campbell describes the specific level of scrutiny that should be applied. Where? And that level is where it says the key inquiry in a book removal case is the government's substantial motivation in arriving at the arrival decision. Your Honor, I'm getting there. Not Just a level of scrutiny. One more second. Yeah. Specifically, whether the government has removed the books because they dislike the ideas that they contain and seek to prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, religion, and other matters of opinion. So as to book removal cases, Does the phrase strict scrutiny appear in Campbell? It does not, Your Honor, but the level of scrutiny that applies is what I just described that does apply specifically as to libraries. Are you aware of whether- Just a minute, Judge Duckman, if I may. If, let me ask you about Campbell, though. Uh, the district judge used um, the phrase substantial factor Able colleague Judge Weiner here wrote in footnote 21, getting his guidance from PICO, uh, that a decisive factor was one that was a substantial factor in the absence of which the opposite decision would have been reached. And the word decisive and decisive factor appears five times in our Campbell opinion. It seems to me decisive is substantially different than, than potentially uh, what the district judge applied here. It's not one of meaningful factors, it's the without which not factor. Is that what the district judge looked at or is that the wrong test? I think that is the right test that you're describing, Your Honor, in the procedural posture of a case like Campbell, which was the reversal of a summary judgment. Our case is a preliminary injunction. And so there the question is not, whether the, the decisive motivation has been established firmly and conclusively as a matter of final judgment, but whether there is a likelihood of success on the merits. Likelihood of showing it was the factor. That it was a substantial no, or- The decisive factor, and, and I'm asking if you agreed with it, and I thought you just said you did. So a substantial factor, it seems to me, could be multiple things, but there is one decisive factor according to Pulling that from Pico, Judge Weiner writing in a footnote of what he meant by decisive factor. 
I, I do agree, Your Honor, that ultimately in a decision on the merits, the fact finder will have to decide what is the singular decisive yeah, but factor. On preliminary injunction, you have to make a clear showing that you're likely to succeed on the merits. And Judge South was, is asking, what is the clear showing of the decisive motivation here? That is what I was asking. I, then I apologize, I Your Honor. I misunderstood your question. The clear showing of the decisive factor is the district court's credibility determination when he found that the offering of weeding as a reason for removing these books was pretextual. And the Black's Law definition- a Pretext for what? Was a pretext for the fact that they disliked the ideas in the books and wanted to prescribe what should be orthodox in religion, politics. Do you not, do you agree that even if Campbell is the governing standard, which I'm not at all convinced of, but even if it is, um, that a public library can re remove pervasively vulgar books? I thought Campbell said that. Campbell, I don't believe It's that quoting Campbell. Pico. I don't believe that Campbell does say that. I believe that's what Chira says when it is saying, in the alternative, if we did not find this to be government speech, to which no forum applied and no uh, level of scrutiny applies, then even if we were going to apply PICO to the government's decision about what books to offer in, the, in schools for serving their inculcative function, it still would be unconstitutional if it was pervasively vulgar or didn't meet educational suitability. Not applicable here. I do, Your Honor. I do for both of those reasons. First of all, Cheerus is a book. It, I'm sorry, it's not a book. It is a case about the choice of books to appear on permissible lists for school education. And Cheerus points out that there's a statute that ap applies to the Board of Education that says the Board of Education gets to have wide, vast, almost unlimited, but not unlimited discretion in deciding how we inculcate our students. Specifically, we're focused on patriotism and we're focus focused on the free market economy. And that is why Chiris decides that that's government speech to which no level of scrutiny applies and no forum analysis is appropriate. But that's not what's happening here, Your Honor. This is not only not a school library, which PICO would, argue, would recognizes that schools have greater discretion because of the educational purpose of their library. This is a public library. So speaking of public libraries, ALA is a public library case, and it's from the United States Supreme Court. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, and it postdates Campbell. And here's some quotes. Um, quote, to fulfill their traditional missions, public libraries must have broad discretion to decide what material to provide to their patrons. And here's, a, here's something that it quoted from another book approvingly. The librarian's responsibility is to separate out the gold from the garbage not to preserve everything. So in light of those quotes from the plurality opinion of ALA, which our, our court approvingly quoted in, in Kiras, how can it be correct that the district court applied strict scrutiny to any content or viewpoint-based decision to curate what the books are on a public library shelf? First, Your Honor, respectfully, the district court did not apply strict scrutiny. It, ex it questioned. Do you want me to quote the district court saying strict scrutiny? Um, is that in the content-based alternative finding, Your yes. Honor? Yes. 
Okay. The court's primary finding was on viewpoint-based, and it was not applying strict. It didn't apply any strict scrutiny. It just it just said it's not okay. Your Honor, it applied Campbell, and Campbell tells us that the standard for reviewing a book removal decision is whether the government has removed the books because they dislike the ideas they contain. So it's odd if if that is a finding. It's just, I, I, I remove the book because I dislike the ideas. If that's the standard you're saying, then it's automatically unconstitutional. Well, no, Your Honor. The standard about disliking the ideas is looking at viewpoint discrimination. And it's clear from this court in Robinson versus Hunt County that viewpoint discrimination occurs when a state actor's subjective judgment that the content of the protective speech is offensive or inappropriate. Can I ask you a hypo then based on that? Yes, Your Honor. So let's say a new librarian comes in and discovers on the shelves a book by a former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. The book explains why black people are an inferior race. So she removes it from the shelves. Is that viewpoint discrimination? And if so, is that unconstitutional? In your hypothetical, Judge Duncan, why did she remove it from the Because she found that idea offensive, that black people are inferior. If that was her substantial, or as Judge Southwick points out, decisive motivation, then yes, Your Honor. Really? Really? So, so we, had a, we had a guy named David Duke run for uh, governor of this state. It was pretty embarrassing for me personally. But he ran for governor and got quite a few votes. You're telling me if David Duke put in the autobiography of David Duke, you know, my heartfelt feelings on why black people are an inferior race, a public library cannot remove that book. Well, first of all, Your Honor, the hypothetical presumes that it made its way. Yes, it does. Um, In the hypothetical, did he, did a librarian have to accept it in the first instance, or does the individual have the ability to just put it on the shelf? It's in the library, the librarian comes in, David Duke, wow, that's offensive. I'm taking that off the shelf. That's not, that's not educationally suitable, to quote Campbell. That's pervasively vulgar. We'll get to vulgarity in a second, but you're saying that's a First Amendment violation. I am saying that if the books were in the library, selected by a librarian, then Campbell tells us that if the, the substantial motivation for the removal is disagreement with the ideas, then yes, Your Honor, that's unconstitutional. The same way, and it doesn't matter that you and I are offended by that book, it can't be removed because of that disagreement. There are other things that librarians can do so let me to address just move, that. Let issue. me move to something that's not a hypothetical. The first category the district court talks about in terms of viewpoint discrimination is, and I never foresaw myself saying these words, in the august courtroom of the Fifth Circuit, but butt and fart books. One of them's called Freddy the Farting Snowman. Okay, so the, in this case, the librarian found Freddy the Farting Snowman on the shelves of the library. Patrons said, that's kind of trivial and stupid and gross. Please get that out of here. That's a First Amendment violation to get rid of Freddy the Farting Snowman. If the reason she got rid of the book was because the government disagreed with the ideas in the book, the viewpoint in the book, then yes, it is a First Amendment violation. I appreciate your candor. Counsel, you have drawn this distinction, and uh, I know the source of some of it, between the initial purchase and then a removal later uh, as some sort of fundamental. Some of the quotes from American Library Association, my 
uh, colleague has addressed, uh, as quoted already, doesn't seem to make that distinction. It talks about what is available at the library. So what are you relying on other than net choice v. Paxton, which is dicta, I might say, but I don't know whose brief complained the most about dicta and the other side's brief, but nonetheless, yours had a lot of that. So what do you have to rely on for that distinction? First of all, I note that two of the justices in ALA talked about it as if it were a removal case. Souter and Ginsburg both said we should analyze this as a removal case. And the seven other justices did not agree with them, which tells me it was not a removal case, it was an acquisition case. So, uh, the second thing is that I think that that is a misinterpretation of that language in LA, ALA, that it is focused on acquisition because that is what's happening with the internet filter that was being discussed in that case. I agree with you, the internet is a, sort of a different bird it looks like it could be either, but uh, I understand your argument on that. So maybe that's what ALA is, maybe that's not what it is. But I don't think the majority declares, or the plurality declares. I, I, I agree with you that it is a matter of interpretation about whether ALA is drawing a distinct difference between uh, acquisition and removal, but I do think that is the better reading of ALA given the two dissents that are not discussed or accepted by the other seven justices. The other thing is to just note the way the internet filter was actually working in LA, ALA. It prevented material from coming into the library in the first instance. When SIPA was is, applied in ALA, what if, the, what, what if the library had unfiltered internet, SIPA, I think that was the law, then goes into effect and you have to put the filters. So that's, that's analogous to taking books off the shelves. You're taking certain internet sites off out of circulation. So ALA comes out differently? Judge Duncan, that is an interesting question and that's a harder hypothetical. I still think that the, the way the internet works, um, yeah, that's a, that's a much harder hypothetical, Your Honor, but those aren't the facts that we're presented with here. Here, there are books that were selected by the librarian in the ordinary course and they were put on the shelf and maintained in the card catalog. And after certain individuals complained to the county judge and to the commissioner, the district court found, as a matter of fact, that the commissioners ordered the librarian to remove the butt and the fart books. You know, but it's not just the butt and the fart books. The, I, I've, I've read the evidence in this case. And when the district judge ascribes motives to Milam, the district judge refers to an exhibit, 22-10, that refers to emails. And the email, the, 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 the original email says, well, there's pornographic filth in the library and we want something done about it. So the first question is, I mean, on its face, why is removing pornography from a library an impermissible motive under the First Amendment? Surely a library, if it discovers it has pornography, whether that be on the shelves or on the internet, can remove it. I agree with you, Your Honor, that if the materials okay. at issue were shown to meet the Miller test for obscenity, there would not be a First Amendment problem. Well, the email, the email referred by name to a book called Lawn Boy and a book called Gender Queer. Now, I'm not saying those books were taken out of the library because evidently maybe they weren't in the library. I don't know what the record shows. But we're ascribing motives on the basis of that email. 
And lawn boy and genderqueer, if they don't meet the definition of pornography, I don't know what does. Your Honor, with all due respect, the definition uh, for First Amendment purposes is not pornography. It's, of those it's, books? It's, it's obscenity. Um, okay, obscenity. Sorry, I misspoke. Lawn Boy is about a 10-year-old um, having oral sex. There is no evidence. Seems obscene. There is no. Uh, Your Honor, as, as you pointed out earlier, we're focused on Amber Milam's motivation. Yes. But Amber Milam testified that she didn't read that book. Well, so the district, okay. The district court said he didn't believe the weeding rationale, so I'm taking that as a given. He ascribed the motivations to her that were in the Wells and Wallace email. And I'm saying that the Wells and Wallace email, if you read it, was concerned about depic certain depictions of sexuality. And my only, my only point, which I think is fully supported by Campbell, is that public libraries or even school libraries would be on firm ground in taking out pervasively vulgar materials, which, which Campbell says. I agree with that, Your Honor, that if that were the motivation, then that would not be a First Amendment violation. But here on this record, where the district court heard two days of testimony and received emails, not only the email that you're talking about, Your Honor, but other contemporaneous emails that displayed what was the intent and motivation between selecting these books and removing them from the shelves. The district court found, as a matter of fact, that the motivation was disagreement with the viewpoints and contents of the book. And, and that's and enough that's to show a first, what if, what if I see a pornographic, obscene book about a 10-year-old filleting another 10-year-old, which is what Lawn Boy is, and, and, the, and the public library says, I don't want that because it's pervasively vulgar. Why? And I don't like the idea of that either. Why does that violate the First Amendment? If it meets the obscenity test, it's not a First Amendment violation. But there is no evidence here, and the district court did not find, that Ms. Milam or any of the government actors were applying the obscenity test. If they had been, then that would not be a violation. Well, counsel, some tests, some tests must have been applied. What do you do with the, the fact in this case, and uh, correct me on the numbers, at least the Wallace list or some list uh, had 47 books, but only 17 were removed. So it does seem to me that this wasn't uh, court blanche to whoever these objectives were, and sure enough, uh, uh, your motivations are enough for me. Somebody must have been looking at these books or, or just deciding I'll take a few off and not worry about the rest. So there's some decision-making process that I don't see that the district court gave any weight to. What do you make of those numbers? Your Honor, that is definitely evidence that I think is relevant to the motivation of the decision maker. Was but that part of what was presented in the evidentiary hearing? It was, Your Honor. That was presented to the district court. And on, in this procedural posture, on an appeal from a grant of a preliminary injunction, the district court's findings have to be clearly erroneous. And Hopwood tells us that's not just maybe wrong, that's not just could be wrong, it's dead wrong. And although we have discussed certain I like that. pieces, have we said that in, in Hopwood? Yes, sir, Your Honor. Dead, dead wrong. Your, yes, your, yes, Your Honor. Did Judge Willett write that? No, never mind. Keep going. <laughs> that case been overruled. Sorry. Let me ask you one. Yes, Your Honor. Question: If uh, this panel or a majority of this panel were to agree with you, uh, was the uh, judgment overbroad, and uh, do we need to? 
remand to narrow it to the 17 books? Your Honor, we would not object to you narrowing it to the 17 books, but I do say that neither the plaintiffs nor the defendants have interpreted the order to be overbroad. The, although the defendants did quickly put the 17 books back on the shelf, they did not ask the court for reconsideration or any clarification, and they did not make any attempt to put additional books back on the shelf. So although we wouldn't object, I don't think that's inappropriate. If I can, oh, yes, Your Honor? Let me ask, uh, Mr. Mitchell, is, uh, obviously this, this idea of the, of the case being mooted, uh, to me at least on first blush, doesn't seem very logical. But his point is that the only people suing here are these named plaintiffs. And these named plaintiffs are aware of where these 17 books are and, and their ability to access them. So help me with how these, uh, these plaintiffs, not 17 plaintiffs, so maybe they are, are, are still injured when they know about the books and they know how to, about, how to access them and nobody else is involved in this litigation. See, I'm out of time, so I'm going to try to make this as narrow as Well, no, I, I want an answer, and uh, you can take reasonable time to answer. I appreciate that, Your Honor. First of all, the district court made factual findings about how they are burdened. About the judge what? About how these plaintiffs are burdened by this um, litigation posturing is what the district court called well, maybe it's litigation it's posturing. It certainly was trying to affect litigation with all due respect. Uh, through the process, but it's happened and it's there. So, this, so help me with why that, regardless of whether it was considered to be not quite the right, right way to go about it, uh, there's no capable of repetition uh, evading review as to this case issue. Well, I disagree with that, Your Honor, because there's nothing that stops Lano County if this case were to be dismissed. Well, in this case, on the, seven, on the 17 books, it it is on the 17 books, but. If you, rem if you deny this case as moot, then there's nothing to make Lano County keep those books in the hidden library when they've already removed them from the shelves. But in answer to your primary the question. The library is not hidden from the plaintiffs is all I'm asking about. And that's the premise for my question to you. Is, do I agree that they are not hidden from the plaintiffs? I don't know if I was asking you to agree. I thought you would. They're not hidden. You know about them. And I thought it was clear that they could access them. So I'm just talking about in terms of focusing on the plaintiffs. Yes. Where are we now that those books are available to them? The district court found that there remains a First Amendment burden on the plaintiffs, even though through this litigation they know that they can get the books uh, what, from what the is, library. I don't remember. What is that burden? Those burdens are that they're not available on the shelf. They're not indicated in the catalog so that what you cannot. I'm sorry? What effect does it have? They're not in the catalog. They're in the mental catalog, they know they're there. Well, they don't know if they're available. When I go to the library, I check the catalog online to see if the, if the book is in the library before I go to ask for it. And so here, the plaintiffs have no way of knowing if the books are actually available in the hidden library. Second, they are, they are unable to pull them off the shelves like you can pull every other book that is not disfavored by the government. Are you, saying, the are you saying having to go and ask the librarian for the book is a First Amendment burden? I am, Your Honor. Okay. That's what the, dis that's what okay. the district Well, I know. Well, uh, so in ALA, asking for the website to be unblocked was not a First Amendment burden. How is that any different from this? 
because the internet is different from books that were on the shelf. And ALA is a case about the government providing subsidies for the internet. And so I think that it is fundamentally different from the provision of books that have been selected by a librarian as appropriate for the community when the evidence shows and it, there has been no demonstration that it's clearly erroneous that they were removed and ultimately hidden behind the counter because the government disagreed with the content and viewpoint of those books. You were about to say something in, in your last few seconds and I took your last few seconds. You can go ahead and wrap up with whatever you had. The last few things I were gonna say is Lano County raises many interesting legal issues about forum, about what level of scrutiny, none of those need to be decided in this case on this procedural posture. Campbell tells us what the test is and it looks at the substantial motivation of the decision maker who is removing the books. If they don't like the ideas and want to prescribe what is appropriate in politics and religion, that's what the district court found here. There has been no showing that that finding is clearly erroneous and this case if the administrative stay is lifted, we'll proceed to trial in October, and there can be more evidence on this point for a final finding. All right, counsel, thank you. Thank you, your honors. Your honors, I'd like to begin with where just Southwick left off on the question of mootness. I must say you're providing these books struck me as as not particularly mooting, but uh, your point about the plaintiffs are the only ones we need to worry about, so anyway. I want to make absolutely clear, Judge Southwick, we are not mooting the claims in any way by offering the books. Mooting the, the injunction. Library. I'm sorry, sir? You're mooting the injunction. I'm I don't think we're mooting the injunction either. What we're doing is eliminating any violation or potential violation of the plaintiff's constitutional rights. There is still an Article Three case or controversy because we haven't returned the books to the library shelves. If we had put the books back on the shelves in catalog, which is what they're demanding, then there would be a mootness question because we've eliminated the injury they're alleging with respect to Article Three. There's a difference between Article Three injury, which they have, and a violation of the First Amendment rights, which they don't have. So by offering these books to the plaintiffs, we've eliminated any possible claim that we're violating their First Amendment right to access and receive information but there's still an Article Three case for controversy. So with respect, Judge Southwick, I don't believe the court should consider, for example, whether this is capable of repetition yet evading review. A court only gets to that inquiry if the Article Three injury has been completely eliminated, and that is not what we've done. In a way, we've partially eliminated their injury, maybe 90% eliminated their injury, but there's still this question about the location of the books. And even though that's a very small Article Three harm, an identifiable, tri identifiable trifle is all a plaintiff needs under Article Three to maintain a case or controversy for this court. So the plaintiffs consistently accuse us of trying to moot the case. They've accused us of contesting their standing in the Appellee's brief. That is absolutely false. We have said in the district court, and I'll say again in this court, we've already said it in our brief, we are not arguing that their claims are moot, and it would be wrong for this court to say that their claims are moot. With respect to the other points that Ms. Chiarello mentioned, several points just to make about Campbell. The language that she reads from the Campbell opinion does not establish a categorical ban on viewpoint discrimination, and it assuredly does not establish a ban on content discrimination. It, it says the key inquiry is, quote, whether the government has removed the book 
because they dislike the ideas and seek to prescribe what shall be orthodox, end quote. That is a far cry from saying that content discrimination is categorically disallowed or subject to strict scrutiny, and that is a far cry from saying you cannot have viewpoint discrimination. Judge Duncan, I think your honor is right. You certainly can remove books in a library that are espousing racist ideas, even though that is clearly viewpoint discrimination. You can clearly weed books from a library that peddle junk science or conspiracy theories. You can peddle books that are outdated or that have views that are now rendered obsolete. All of that is viewpoint discrimination. All of that is perfectly constitutional. It is absurd to say that the First Amendment prohibits public libraries from engaging in viewpoint discrimination or content discrimination or that it subjects content discrimination to strict scrutiny. No public library could function under this regime. Not even Justice Brennan in PICO went that far. The district court has gone beyond what any justice of the Supreme Court has ever said in any opinion of this court, and it is going far beyond Campbell. So for Ms. Chiarello to stand up and say the district court was just applying Campbell, that is not what the district court said. The district court said no viewpoint discrimination, period. The district court said no content discrimination unless you can survive strict scrutiny. That is not the law, and it's certainly not what Campbell says. It's also worth pointing out just how far-reaching Ms. Chiarello's position is. In response to the questions from the bench about pornographic materials, Ms. Chiarello conceded only that a public library could remove obscenity. And as I interpreted her answer, she is saying that a public library could not remove pornographic materials that do not meet the Miller test for obscenity. Almost nothing meets the Miller test for obscenity. When's the last time anyone saw a successful conviction under Miller for obscenity? Everything that's pornographic today, unless it's child pornography, is considered constitutionally protected, including virtual child pornography, where child pornography is depicted in cartoons rather than with real children. So all of that stuff would have to remain in a library, and none of that smut could be weeded if we take this ban on content discrimination seriously, because it seems the only thing the plaintiffs are willing to concede is that public libraries can meet weed stuff that rises to unconstitutionally, I'm sorry, obscenity that is excluded from protection under the First Amendment. And again, that would mean Playboy and Hustler have to be stored in the magazine racks because neither of those magazines beat the Miller test for obscenity. Finally, this distinction between acquisition and removal. It makes no sense for all sorts of reasons. Weeding is just as much part of the selection process as the initial purchase of books. And if this court were to say that somehow the regime for removal is different from the regime for initial acquisition, there's an easy workaround to that. Just have one of these private citizens who's one of the activists who dislikes the book, check out the book and lose it. And then when they report back to the library, I've lost the book, I'll pay the fine. The library will just decide we're not gonna buy a new replacement copy. And then we're gonna be in a different regime from what we have under this no viewpoint discrimination rule that applies to weeding decisions. It's not logical, it makes no sense. I see my time has expired. We respectfully ask the court to reverse. All right, counsel. Thank you, your honors. Thanks to both of you for bringing your views to us and responding to our questions. Uh, this will be an interesting case to resolve. This is the last argument of the week for this panel. We are adjourned. Do you have any parting remarks?